So glad to have you guys here this morning. My name is John Nimmers. I'm the evangelism director here at Salerville. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And we are going to start our, uh, our first week of our new series in the book of Ruth that will probably last until summer. And today I'm not going to be fixed on any specific passage. I'm actually going to do a flyover, an overview of the whole thing, so don't get comfortable. We're going to be jumping around the whole book. Uh, but as you turn there, do you guys remember the movie Titanic when that came out? My two older sisters, oldest sisters, uh, they were in high school, I believe, when it came out, and uh, they really wanted to go see it. And my parents, being the good Baptists that they were at the time, they refused to let their daughters go see that movie. And uh, everyone, everyone, apparently, I was only three years old when it happened, so I don't really remember, but what I've been told is that everyone was just going nuts over this movie. They thought it was just the greatest love story of all time, right? You had a little bit of everything. You had Jack and Rose, upper class versus lower class. You had chivalry. You had romance. You even had an overbearing mother thrown into the mix, right? And of course, you had the tragedy of the ship crashing into the iceberg and sinking. Well, as we get into this book of Ruth, in a very similar way, many people have described this book as one of the greatest romantic short stories of all time. Like the Titanic, it too has a little bit of everything in its stories. It has tragedy, it has depression, it has the separation of loved ones, there's danger, there's also romance, right? And there's a, if you know the story at all, you know that there's a very interesting, to say the least, midnight encounter. I'll leave that to the person who's preaching on that one. There's, there's chivalry, right? There's loyalty. There's the birth of a child. And yes, just like in Titanic, there is a nosy mother-in-law thrown into the mix, right? Apparently, you have to have those if you're going to write a love story. But this is a, it's a great story, and it definitely deserves our great attention in the weeks to come as we work our way through this book. And it starts off in chapter 1 with tragedy. There's tragedy. There's a famine that forces a husband and a wife and their two sons off to a foreign land from their hometown, off to a foreign land. And the two sons, they get married in this foreign land. Uh, But quickly, the, the husband dies, and then 10 years later, the two sons die. There's tragedy. And Naomi, that is the mother in this story, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who the book is named after, they leave this foreign land and they go back to their hometown in Bethlehem. And chapter 2 picks it up where where Ruth uh, knows that she needs to provide for Naomi. So she goes out and works in the fields where she just so happens to meet Prince Charming. And Prince Charming, his name is Boaz, and Boaz is an extremely godly man, and Ruth apparently really liked what she saw, because in chapter 3, we have Naomi, who uh, was playing a little bit of matchmaker, trying to get Ruth and Boaz married together, which I think, personally, I think this just proves that mothers haven't really changed throughout history. They're on one thing. They want grandbabies. Can I get an amen from you grandmas out there? And then in chapter 4, You have Boaz in his romantic 
way, jumping through every hoop possible, just so that he can marry Ruth. And he does, and it results in the birth of a child, and Grandma Naomi does get her grandbaby. But while there is so much to learn in these events, there's so much, and we're going to see that in the upcoming weeks. We're going to dig into all of these individual events. But what I want to do this morning is I want to draw your attention to a common thread going throughout this story. A common thread that is weaving its way throughout and pulling together the events in Ruth. And if you don't see it, if you, don't, if you miss this common thread throughout this book, then you're really you're going to miss the entire purpose of the book itself. It's a little bit like a mosaic. Uh, if you know what a mosaic is, you have these individual pictures, and each of these individual pictures are meaningful in and of themselves, right? I mean, just like the events in the story, they're meaningful in and of themselves. But once you zoom out, when you zoom out, what you see is that all of these pictures, all of these events going on in Ruth are working together to create a bigger picture. And in our story, in Ruth, the thread that is weaving throughout the story and pulling all of these events together to create this bigger picture is called providence. Providence. Now, that is a scary theological word, right? But in order to understand the book of Ruth, we must understand this word providence. So let me just quickly, as succinctly as I can, explain this word to you. When people think of that word providence, oftentimes they think it just simply means that God knows or he foresees the future. He's aware of the future. But I believe, I think, that a better interpretation of this word is not just simply that God has foresight or he sees forward into the future, but rather he sees to it. He sees to it. I know you might think that's splitting hairs a little bit, right? But it's, it's actually, there's a really big difference here. See, because if God just foresees or he has foreknowledge about something, it indicates that he's passive about knowing something in the past. But to see to it implies that God is active in the way that he brings about the future, right? It's like my wife, when she tells me, John, you need to go take out the trash. A right response from me should be, honey, I will see to it that it gets done, right? There's an action step there, and that's what's going on here. And the reason I believe this, because, again, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I believe, right? Who cares about my opinion? What does God have to say about this? And the reason why I think to see to it is a better way to understand providence is because, simply put, that's how the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it like that. If you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's with his son. They're walking up the mountain. They have no lamb. Isaac looks at his daddy and says, Dad, where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? He says, son, the Lord will provide. That's that word. The Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it that we have our lamb. That's what providence is. This is what providence is because I don't, and you shouldn't either, I do not believe in a deistic, impersonal God. Amen? I don't believe in that. 
Rather, the biblical providence, biblical providence is God orchestrating all things in existence from galaxies to governments, from angels to animals, from people to plants, from your air circulation to your circumstances. God is actively working out everything according to his holy wise and good purposes. That's what providence is. And it's this providence that we see weaving its way through this story and pulling all of these events together to create a bigger picture. And I don't think this is a a heady topic. I think this is an extremely important topic for us to think about for us to examine. It is extremely relevant because our culture as a whole and many of you in this room are absolutely addicted to control. You're addicted to it. You want to control your life. You want to control your circumstances. You want to control your family. You want to control your future. And I'm included in this. I don't think that many of us have a healthy grasp of the glorious implications of the providence of God. So my goal here this morning is that we could zoom out, so to speak, right? I want to zoom out so that we can embrace the big providential picture of God. And and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to walk through four providential truths in the book of Ruth. And here's the first one. The first truth is this. God's providence is over your world. God's providence is over your world. Let's go back to our story. Look at chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to be jumping around here, so just follow along. and Let's see how this takes place, how God is provident over the world here. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 6. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord visited his people and had given them food. Verse 22. So at the beginning of... So at Naomi, that rather, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now jump over to chapter 2, verse 3. Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem at this point, and Ruth is going out into the field to, to work and get food. And then verse 3 says this, and she happened, right? That's an interesting word. She just so happened. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to to Boaz. Let me just recap real quick. God saw to it that this famine would happen, leading Naomi to leave Bethlehem. God saw to it that this land, that the land in Israel would be restored, leading for Ruth and Naomi to come back to Bethlehem. God saw to it that they would leave at the exact millisecond, the perfect amount of time, the exact millisecond they needed to leave in order to show up at precisely the right time when harvest was happening. 
And then finally, God saw to it that Ruth would find her way to exactly the right field where she would just so happen to meet Boaz. God's hand was providentially orchestrating the world so that Boaz and Ruth could meet. Wouldn't you like to have that story? Imagine telling that to your friends on a date, right? How did you guys meet? Well, God orchestrated the world so that we can meet, right? Here's the correlation for us here today. As much as you might want to or try to be, you are not in control of your world around you. You're not. God's in control. In fact, you're not even in control of your own life. Look at what Job says in Job 33. He says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty literally gives him life, gives us life. I hope you are realizing what this means. That means that your lungs contract because God controls. Every breath you take is a merciful act of God in the pursuit of his providential circumstances, providential purposes. And while it seems serious, it is actually the best news for those of you who know this God. For those of you who know this God, this is the best news possible. And here's why. Here's how Jesus explained it in Matthew 6. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Look to the birds. Look to the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet, here's your providence, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that if God loves his creation so much that he providentially cares for the seemingly insignificant creatures of his created world, then you, who, are God, who is God's prized possession, the creation that is made in his image, Jesus is saying you do not need to worry about controlling the world around you. I've got this, God says. God's providence is over your world. That's truth number one. Truth number two is this. God's providence is over your suffering. God's providence is over your suffering. Go back to the beginning of chapter one. We're going to look at verse three and five. Elimelech, verse three, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. Verse five. And both Malon and Chilion, that's Naomi's sons, died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Joseph Kennedy, the father of the famous President John F. Kennedy, who was shot and killed, buried not just one, but four of his children before he died. 
And reflecting on this, he was, he was quoted to say, when the young bury the old, time heals the pain and sorrowing. sorrowing. But when the process is reversed, the sorrow remains forever. Look, I know that some of you here this morning, you really are dealing with the suffering of a lost one. Maybe very recently. And we weep with you. We do. We love you guys. But maybe others, while it's not death, you were experiencing some of the worst suffering you've ever experienced in your life right now. And while you're suffering, you're asking yourself the age-old question to God, why? Why? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why does this hurt so much? It's a good question. The psalmist asks it all the time. Why? Let's let the Bible answer this question. King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, 14, the day, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. There's your providence. And here's why. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I want you to feel what this verse is talking about. A right response to someone who asks why when they are suffering is I do not know. I don't know. I don't know fully why God is doing what he is doing. And while that answer may be incredibly hard to hear, especially for those of you who are currently suffering. It may be incredibly hard to hear. I truly believe it leads to this. When you are in the midst of suffering, God doesn't want you to be dependent on his answer. God wants you to be dependent on his character. Let me repeat that. In the midst of your suffering, if you are here this morning and you are suffering, in the midst of it, God does not want you to be dependent on his answer. God wants you to be dependent on his character. He wants you to know who he is. That's what we want. We just look in life and we go, yeah, I just give me the answer, God, then I'll, then I'll believe you. God says, no, just trust me. Believe me. Know who I am. This is how Job puts it in Job 23. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. Those of you who are suffering, does that sound familiar? But then watch this. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right, and I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I hope you realize what Job is saying. Job is saying that even when I don't feel God working or have the slightest 
clue as to what he is doing around me in my circumstances. I know his character. I know that this is a good God. I know that he is a purposeful God. And so I will cling not to an answer, but to him. I will cling to his character, his person, and I will trust that his purposes are holy, wise, and good. For those of you who are suffering, hold on to God's character because God's providence is over your suffering. The third truth is God's providence is over your sanctification. Now, there's a really interesting comparison going on here between Boaz and Naomi. Uh, the very first words out of the book of Ruth are, tell us that, that this is happening in the time of Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that quite literally, wickedness was ingrained into Israel as a culture, right? And yet, here you have Boaz, this, this chivalrous godly man who finds in chapters 2 and 3 Ruth all alone. And if this was any man in that culture, they would have taken full advantage of her, and yet he didn't. He didn't. He, he, this really shows, this character of Boaz shows that he is a righteous man in a wicked culture. And then you contrast that with Naomi. And Naomi, I mean, she's hard to pick on, right? Because she just got done suffering. We saw that. But nonetheless, in chapter 1, we see that she shows almost no trust in God, right? And she even tells her daughters-in-law to get out of here, go back, and go worship other gods. Now, I think there's two lessons that we can learn from God's providence over our sanctification here. And the first one comes from Boaz, and it's this. When God saves you, he will keep you from looking like the world around you. When he saves you, he keeps you from looking like the world around you. Jude verse 24 says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Uh, ten years ago, I was in high school, and I was not a Christian and I was arrested. I was arrested because of my anger. There, I was at school, and I saw this guy, and I just felt this bubbling anger just come up inside of me, and I just blacked out, and I lashed out. I went and, got, and I fought this guy and ended up getting arrested for it and thrown in, in juvie. But fast forward to just the other day, literally while I was preparing for this message, I had this point out on my kitchen counter, and I'm looking at it, and I, I flip over to Facebook real quick, and I see this guy where this temptation to boil up in anger just starts to come over me again. And I haven't felt that for, for years. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? But immediately, when that was happening, I didn't lash out. I felt convicted. I felt convicted, and God actually allowed me to get down on my knees and pray for this individual and confess my own sin of anger. And I don't say that for you guys to give me a round of applause, but I, I say it to beg the question, what changed? Clearly, there are two different types of people happening here, going on. What 
changed. What changed was the Holy Spirit was providentially keeping me from stumbling and looking like the world around me. And I could point to many people in this room and say, they're examples of that exact same thing. That's what Boaz shows us. God's sovereignty over our sanctification keeps us from looking like the world around us. Secondly, we we see from Naomi that even when you stumble, God will use your sin for good. I'm getting this from one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph's brothers uh, tried to kill him, and then they sell him into slavery, and then as providence would have it, they would have a family reunion where his brothers would just be scared out of their minds, right? And this is what Joseph said. He says, brothers, you, wicked brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, Joseph's saying that God used the sin of his brothers to bring about his good purposes. That's interesting, isn't it? That's amazing. That doesn't give you an excuse to sin, right? God's not saying, just go on and sin now because I'll I'll make it good. That's not what he's saying. But it shows the power of this providential God to say, even when you are wicked, I'm still going to look great. And God did the same thing with Naomi, and he is and will and continue to do the same thing with your sin. Now, I know many people, when I say something like that, they'll go, you have no idea who I am. (laughs) You don't know what kind of sins I'm into. You don't know what I did in my past. And if that's you, I encourage you to turn to chapter 4 in Ruth and look at verse 12. And you'll see two names there, Tamar and Judah. Now, if you don't know their story, I encourage you after church today, go go read their story in Genesis 38. And you'll find out that they have one of the most sinful and scandalous stories in all of the Bible. And yet here they are being mentioned in Ruth in a positive light. Well, why? Why? Because God used their sin to bring about his holy, wise, and good purposes. Listen, civil church, your sin is not too ugly for God to do something beautiful with. It's not too ugly for God to do something beautiful with. The fourth and final truth is God's providence is over your salvation. So up to this point, we've really just been dancing around the big question. The big question being, what is God's big purpose? What is his ultimate providential purpose in the book of Ruth? Because so far, we've just seen a bunch of circumstantial purposes in the time frame itself, right? The famine happens, bringing them to Moab. The, the land in Israel gets restored, bringing them back at the same time this is all happening. The sons, the father dies so that Ruth could, could, could come back a single bachelorette to Bethlehem to meet Boaz just by happenstance, you know, finds this field. But the question still remains, what was God's ultimate providential purpose in doing what he did in Naomi's life? 
And we find our answer in chapter 4, verses 13 and 7. Interestingly enough, similar to us in our suffering, in the midst of our suffering, if you were to ask Naomi, what's the big purpose? What's the big idea that God's trying to accomplish here? She would say, I don't know. I don't know fully what's going on, but we do. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. There's your providence right there. The Lord is doing this. The Lord is giving the conception. And she bore a son. Verse, end of verse 17. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See what's going on here? God saw to it that Ruth would become pregnant and have a son named Obed. God saw to it that Obed would be the grandfather of King David. And God saw to it that King David's family line would eventually give birth to a greater king, a king that we just spent last weekend celebrating. This is a perfect king, a sinless king, a holy king whose name was Jesus. And Jesus, while in complete control, because he is God, went to the cross to die on the cross for sinners like me, like you, so that you could have a relationship with this providential God. You see, Statheville Church, the ultimate providential purpose in the story of Ruth was not to give Naomi a baby. It was to give Naomi and the entire world, including you, a savior. That savior being Jesus. God is and always has been providentially sovereign over your salvation. So let me ask one question as we wrap up. Do you need to zoom out? Do you need to zoom out? I was 14 years old, and I was in driver's ed class. Horrible driver. Uh, but the reason why I was a horrible driver is because I would just death grip that wheel, and I would just look directly in front of me. Right? I wouldn't look 10 feet beyond. i just look right here. And so, of course, you see a stop sign coming up. You can't see it until it comes into your view, and then you just slam on the brakes. Right? Horrible driver. And I still remember my teacher, my driver's ed teacher, saying, John, you can't focus. You can't only focus on the road directly in front of you. You have to lift up your eyes to look out at the greater road. If you don't, you're going to crash. That is exactly where some of you are here this morning. You are so fixed on controlling what is in front of you that you can't see. You can't comprehend the greater road. You haven't zoomed out to see the big picture. And eventually, if you don't lift up your eyes, you will crash. But this is the beauty of providence. 
The providence of God lifts up your eyes and helps you zoom out so you can focus on a God's purpose that is holy, wise, and good. Hold on to the providence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you for who you are, Lord. You give us breath even though we don't deserve it. Our lungs contract because you control. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted. I pray that there's, if there is anybody in here who is suffering, anybody in here who is trying to control every life circumstance that they have, I pray that you would lift up their eyes. I pray that they would cling on to the providence of God and by doing so, you would lift up their eyes to say, even if I don't know what's going on, I know that this God is in control. And the God that's in control is a good God that loves me. Lord, we love you. In your son's name, amen.